0: We have with us today Barry Harvey. He is Professor of Theology at Baylor University, author of many things, including Taking Hold of the Real, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the Profound Worldliness of Christianity, and a a revised volume uh, recently put out called Baptist and the Catholic Tradition, Reimagining the Church's Witness in the Modern World. That is our topic today. Welcome, Professor Harvey. Thank you so much. Uh, so th- this, is, this is an update of, of a yep. book written several years ago. Why, why the update? Was there a particular impetus for, for doing the revision?
1: Some. Um, part of it was simply to clarify what I had thought to do in the first edition, um, which was to um, study how Baptists might best move toward full communion with other uh, parts of the church. Uh, It wasn't always read that way, and so I wanted to uh, make that even clearer. And then I also uh, wanted to sharpen the connections between my uh, concern for and interest in the life of the church and its relationship to uh, Christian existence broadly conceived and what was happening in the wider social world. Uh, to which God has sent us as witnesses, um, and as I as I say in the book, uh, the church is a missional movement sent by God into the world, and so it, it's there we have to play away from home, as it were. This is an expression of Rowan Williams, uh, a rather well-known Anglican theologian. In other words, we have to engage other. Forms of life and language, other standpoints, and then um, uh, finally, um, uh, it, it all ultimately interacts. The ecclesial and the political theology elements interacts with the ecumenical movement, and so I wanted to sharpen some things there as well.
0: Uh, on that, on that second point, I think this is a related issue. You begin with Pope Benedict's acknowledgement of the limits of the church in, in contemporary times. What was his point there?
1: Well, I I found that always, uh, when I first ran across that comment, fascinating, um, particularly as someone who grew up Baptist, um, that the Catholic church, um, for centuries seen itself as in some ways uh, whether this is always true in fact is a different matter, the the kind of formative center for an entire society and therefore to hear uh, uh, as Joseph Ratzinger before his election as the Pope that the church must now assume different configurations uh, that identify it less with great civilizations and more with minorities. And as I I said in the introduction, I find that particularly as a Baptist, a a fascinating statement. Um, And then I tie that up with the fact that in the places in the world where the church has traditionally been a powerful institution, in Europe, in Australia, North America to be sure, the church has been, to one extent or another, waning uh, in its influence, indeed, even in its uh, connection with larger and larger portions of the population. And in particular, uh, and this is, I think, a real ongoing concern among many abroad the uh, church and and theological as well as political spectrum, the idea that that Christendom, uh, that is, uh, a place where the church has power and influence to shape an entire Christian culture, uh, has been called into question. And so that, that was a, one of the reasons why uh, Pope Benedict's comment caught me uh, by delightful surprise.
0: Yeah, You asked at the beginning in the early version, uh, 2008, the question, the big question, where do we stand? We're now in Mm -hmm. in 2022. Our stance is a little shakier now, would you say? (laughs) So where do, uh, just a broad summary, where do we stand now?
1: Well, um, I have for quite a while now uh, defined for myself and sometimes for others the underlining rationale for my work as a theologian it's predicated on two uh, theses from which then I draw a conclusion. The first thesis being, first thesis being, um, history, if it teaches us anything, is that great civilizations always come to an end. Uh, And I say this not out of any sense of delight or enjoyment or anticipation, because it's also the case that you know when in great civilizations end, uh, the resulting period of time is very Hobbesian—short, nasty, and brutish. Uh, and so I and I say that. And I also—I'm I, neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, so I have no idea when, where, and how that will occur. But it—and uh, it's also interesting. Great empires and civilizations always thought themselves to be the exception to that rule. <laughs> and To date, none has ever. Prove to be that. So that's the first thesis. The second thesis is, um, it seems to me that when civilizations fall, the church um, continues on uh, through no merit or particular strength of its own. It's one of the great arguments for the existence of the Holy Spirit, if I may put it that way. And my suspicion has always been that the church that survives the fall of these great civilizations will be much more like what Pope Benedict has described here as aligned with the poor, the persecuted, uh, the marginalized. And then the conclusion I draw from that is it seems to me that what theologians and other leaders of the church and, and of Christian movements worldwide need to be doing is to be teaching and instructing and, and catechizing and, and forming people in light of those two theses.
0: You, you actually summarize modernity as directly an attack uh, upon the church. You say modernity is, quote, the dismembering the body of Christ. A- and then you turn to Ezekiel, actually, for <clears throat> offering modern Christians uh, ideas, inspiration, ways of aiming to restore the body. What is the lesson of Ezekiel for for us in on this issue?
1: Well, it, it is. It's interesting. Um, by the dismembering of the body, I mean as a coherent social reality that, in some respects, has its own integrity apart from whatever. Uh, social order it is a participant in. Uh, That has been hard to maintain since the time God first spoke to Abraham. Uh, The temptation has been to uh, see the church, the Christian existence, as some way aligned with uh, the great powers, the great empires. Um, And yet, both scripture and tradition seem to teach that when the church has done that, it loses sight of what it is called to be. Um, I'm always mindful of something that Augustine says, St. Augustine says in, on Christian doctrine, which is that uh, people are, uh, Christians are called to be nomads in this world. Uh, and just like people who are foreigners wanting to get it back to their home country, Christians need to use the, the, what the society offers, the good that societies offer, to um, take it back, to transport them to the seculum seculorum, the, the coming age. Um, and um, uh, he says, inevitably, Christians become enchanted with the pleasures of the present age and lose sight of what they're heading. One so the significance, therefore, of Ezekiel is, um, as Scripture says, there really is nothing new under the sun. This has happened before. Ezekiel is talking about the dismembering of the people of Israel after the the, the fall of Jerusalem and the beginning of the exile, and yet God remains faithful to that as well uh, to him, uh, although the, the the road back is long and arduous and takes unanticipated turns. Um, um, And indeed, for Christians, that most significant of turns is the coming of the Messianic age with this man, Jesus of Nazareth.
0: Was the social gospel movement of the early 20th century something of an attempt to remember the body of Christ against the onslaughts of
1: modernity? Well, you know, the the social gospel movement was a very loose-knit assemblage of people. Uh, The most famous name for most people for the social gospel was Walter Rauschenbusch. And um, he was a Baptist. Uh, His uh, parents and grandparents had been Lutherans, uh, pietists, and when they came to this country. Uh, the Lutheranism they found here was not um, to, their, to their liking, and so they became Baptists who were, had that kind of pietistic Dutch. Uh, and, and it's interesting. Rauschenbusch is probably the best example of someone who tries to bring together a kind of pietistic but also somewhat orthodox understanding of Christianity with 19th century um, Protestant liberalism which, by the way, interestingly enough, plays great faith in the nation state and in democracy and in the idea of progress. Um, there was another Baptist uh, leader of that time, uh, had been president of the Southern Baptist Convention, president of its largest seminary, who talks about uh, the democracy is like a Stileg mite in a cave reaching upwards, and uh, the kingdom of God is like the Stileg type coming down from above, but both are formed by the same life-giving river that flows from the thro- throne of God. So interestingly enough, it was an attempt to recreate, once again, a kind of Christendom. Uh, uh, rather than remembering the body with its own integrity, um, uh, again, once again, trying to align itself with the most powerful and influential structures, institutions of of the time. I'm 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 reminded here. Uh, I don't know if you or your listeners have come across it yet or not. There was a um, Just recently, a statement put out by Orthodox theologians called the Orthodox Declaration on the Russian World Teaching uh, addressing um, the uh, theological rationale being given for the uh, invasion by Russia of Ukraine in which um, it indulges itself in an extreme form of what in Orthodox circles is called ethno- philatism, a kind of ethnic nationalism, identifying the church with uh, a power, in this case, Russia, uh, and uh, uh, justifying the Ukraine war with that, while the American version was not so um, toxic as that, there was still a sense in which there is an identity between uh, the church, its message, and the nation state, the same theologian I was referring to earlier, like to say that uh, Protestant Christianity, as he understood it, would become a religion of the state, but not a state religion. So you can technically keep the Baptist emphasis upon separation of church and state, but they work hand in glove, uh, as in many respects uh, the notion of symphonia does in Orthodox Christianity.
0: all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You say that right now, maybe in the 21st century, our problem is not really what to believe. The questions, the questions of doctrine are less pressing than, quote, how to proceed. What do you mean by that?
1: Well in part, I would say that uh, uh, doctrine is not unimportant. Uh, I would emphasize that. Um, uh, The Orthodox Declaration that I referred to a moment ago is very similar to the Barman Declaration in Germany, written to counter the German Christian church movement. Um, And there has been, in many respects, uh, the loss of a a confessional identity among Christians. Now, there are factions that are very doctrinally oriented. I understand that. Uh, And yet there is no clear standpoint for so many Christian bodies uh, in terms of which they can critique and contest uh, certain things happening in uh, America. Nonetheless, doctrine by itself is not sufficient. and so one of the things that I wanted to emphasize here is at this particular juncture of uh, the history of the church in the United States, um, it is often undecided, and that you can see this by looking at the, at the range of possibilities here in the American uh, landscape, um, how the church should respond uh, to the uh, unraveling of what has been a fairly close relationship until the middle of the 20th century between at least a kind of Protestant Christianity and uh, American nationalism. Uh, And so you see a wide variety of responses here uh, from a a very sharply defined nationalism on one side to a side that um, doesn't seem to have much hope for America in, in many respects. Uh, and so uh, when I talk about where do we go from here, how do we best continue the Christian story? How do we best take up the threads? Uh, and sometimes I use musical imagery. How best do we take up the themes, the motifs of the gospel as it has been brought down to us in, in, in the forms that it has?
0: You know, you speak of the, the process of, of a movement or, or of, of people believing. You, you use a, a metaphor, getting caught up. And, and that struck me because you, you make a lot of that process. That's actually a, a kind of a complicated uh, rhetorical but also sort of psychological and spiritual process, getting caught up. It's not really pers- being persuaded of something on on sort of a a fully discursive way, but it's more complicated than that. What is this caught up, getting caught up process about?
1: Well, it's a phrase that I borrow from a novel by Graham Greene called The Power and the Glory, in which a nameless whiskey priest uh, in the uh, aftermath of an anti-clerical revolution in Mexico does not flee as his fellow priests do but uh, continues on with his duties. This Whiskey Preach, as his uh, nickname implies, it's the only name by which we know him in the the novel, uh, is not in any sense a moral standpoint or or exemplar. And yet he continues to exercise his office. He's finally caught, Uh, he's being interrogated, his future is uh, not uh, bright And so the the policeman who is interrogating him asks why he, of all people, remained behind when the other priest fled. And he says, once I ask myself that, the fact is a man isn't present, isn't suddenly confronted with two courses to follow, one good and one bad. He gets caught up. And the point I make from that is we, our our moral uh, beliefs, our our virtues, our uh, conceptions, uh, our Rarely, if ever, explicit conscious choices, but by the fact of where we're born, the people we interact with, the activities we engage in, we get caught up in a certain form of life. So that the allegiance we pledge to God or to country or to content, to kin, kinfolk, uh, our habits of acting and speaking uh, are never, as our dear forebearer Immanuel Kant thought, Uh, The results of choosing a worldview uh, from a disengaged study of reality, uh, these begin as quite literally being born into a set of relationship and historical events. And I, I think that's significant because this is one of the reasons I would argue it's so hard when people who have been caught up in different ways of standing in and believing in and seeing in and acting in the world, can talk to each other rather than talking past one another. Uh, And that's a malady across the board. And so uh, for for me, it's it's a phrase not only of of a philosophical stance, but also has theological significance. Uh, John Henry Newman liked to talk about the difference uh, between Um, uh, uh, notional assent and real assent in terms of belief. Real assent, I would argue, is something like uh, what I've talked about, getting caught up. It's not that you hold a certain set of beliefs, but those beliefs are part and parcel of a whole way of living um, and uh, acting uh, such that they form the, the basis, the framework, of one's being in the world. And one of the things I was trying to do in this book is to talk about the way in which Christianity is historically, and I think rightly, uh, seen that process of getting caught up in this uh, messianic event is through uh, matters like the liturgy, um, which, uh, and here I'm not saying anything controversial, Baptists have been pretty Impoverished about. Um, uh, and matters like spiritual formation. Uh, again, um, I always found in the Catholic tradition much richer and deeper understandings of this, as well as the, the importance of moral exemplars, what in the Catholic Church are called saints, that help us see more directly um, the kinds of react- responses that someone who has caught up. In the way of Jesus, um, have responded to their times and place, and give us a sense of how we might pick up those same uh, ideas, those same themes, those same moti- motifs. Yeah.
0: You devote many pages to uh, discussion of in, in the past and, by implication, in the present, to apocalyptic thinking, and actually, you use the term apocalyptic action. Are Mm -hmm. we in a time when 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 these things are on the rise, and and is that is that a good thing?
1: Well, it's interesting uh, when we talk about um, apocalyptic matters. um, We have to distinguish between the kind of popular notion uh, of uh, you know uh, the world itself falling apart and the like. as, uh, as opposed to the uh, uh, way that, that theologians such as myself and others have understood it, um, uh, you know, the, the the whole breakdown of whole society. In the way it's used in the New Testament, Apocalypse is uh, referring to uh, what has been revealed in the person of Christ. Uh, and... Uh, That it refers uh, to the unveiling, yes, but not just of ideas or state of affairs, but of the breaking in of God's kingdom, God's reign in the person of Jesus. You mentioned the social gospel a few minutes ago. Because of its reliance on 19th century Protestant liberalism, people like Rauschenbusch would often talk about Jesus pointing to the kingdom. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. picked up on that same idea as well. Whereas, in fact, in the New Testament, Jesus is the kingdom in person. Uh, and so the revelation that takes place, the apocalypse that takes place, is uh, the unveiling but also the realization of the presence of the kingdom in the midst of history. Now, one thing that I would uh, add to that, countering the kind of... Uh, popular notions of, you know, earthquakes and and these kinds of things, is that the breaking into the kingdom and its continued presence with the body of Christ is still formed around the man uh, who continues to wear uh, the the scars of crucifixion on him. Um, If if you look at the book of Revelation, the one is to be revealed is described as both the lion of the tribe of Judah, but also a lamb that appeared to be slaughtered, yet standing. Uh, very similar to the uh, words of, that came out of heaven um, uh, at Jesus' baptism, in which he is declared to be, on the one hand, the son of God in whom God is well pleased, a reference to Psalm 2, and uh, in whom he is great delight, which is a reference to the very first servant song in the book of Isaiah. Bringing these two things together, I would argue, is what constitutes uh, the true understanding of an apocalyptic approach to scripture and to the Christian life.
0: In the Christian life, you, you say that the incarnation must be, quote, the norm of every human being's singular existence. This is, do you worry this is this is too high a bar for people ever or something? No, by the norm, I guess you're not insisting that they, that they fulfill it. This, this should be your, your ambition, your, your, your purpose, your, your orientation. Is that it?
1: Well, the point that I'm making here is, um, that, uh, first of all, the norm of, Every human being's singular existence is, in fact, uh, ultimately an eschatological measurement. So that's, that's first of all. But ultimately, that the particularity of Jesus is meant to be uh, to have a universal extent. Now, how that functions in the present, as opposed to a, or contrasted with an eschatological perspective, is um, that. Um, and, and here, I just not in this book, elsewhere I have talked about it, an understanding of natural law or the natural that comes from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Most of the time, natural law, uh, particularly in Catholic circles, refers to some kind of inherent tendency teleology in human life that comes from the very beginning. Bonhoeffer says, in fact, what is natural uh, about human life in the midst of, of the world is eschatological. And thus he argues that the standard uh, for what is natural, what is fully human, uh, must be coordinated with the revelation of Christ, which can happen on the part of Christians whether or not who they're dealing with uh, is Christian or not. Uh, and so this is a way of, of judging what in the world, this is the way Bonhoeffer puts it, uh, what we encounter in the world, is it, this is his language, Is it open to the coming of Christ? That's what's natural. What's unnatural is what is closed off to the coming of Christ. So you can see there it has a eschatological as opposed to a teleological or uh, an inherent goal of of natural life to it.
0: There's much, much more in this book, much more to talk about, including issues such as the the return of Gnosticism in, in the in the modern world. Uh, the Politics of the Spirit, another another discussion uh, that you have. The Discipline of Unselfing, uh, very interesting, that you have in the book. But for now, the book is, Baptists in the Catholic Tradition, Reimagining the Church's Witness in the Modern World. Professor Harvey, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you very much.
0: And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.